On today's program, the beginning of the end of the pandemic. I was thinking earlier today about how it's time to pen the op-ed about it's time to put a fork in this. As the third year of COVID begins, we check in with three people to see how they're seeing things now. Amy Compton Phillips is a physician leader in Seattle. She thinks COVID is on the cusp of changing to an endemic illness we can live with, but not before it changes medicine. The genomics labs all dramatically ramped up their ability to test during COVID. Now we have all this genomics infrastructure and guess what? We can start not giving people useless medications because for their genome, it won't work. Also today, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News on the policy and politics of COVID and a look at public health's trouble finding a coherent message. It's not just what we're learning about SARS-CoV-2 that keeps changing, it's that SARS-CoV-2 keeps changing. And even with the hope that the end of the pandemic may be in sight, Dr. Zara Esmail, a palliative care physician in Los Angeles County, reminds us that people are still in the ICUs, people are still dying, and caregivers are exhausted. All the things we need as human beings for resilience and to have some joy in the meaning of the work that we do with this pandemic has been taken away. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Glad you're listening. Amy Compton Phillips is president of Clinical Care for Providence. Dr. Compton Phillips is responsible for improving health, care, and value outcomes that are delivered at the 51 hospitals and more than 1,000 clinics in the Providence system. She joins us now from Seattle. Dr. Compton Phillips, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. It is my pleasure being here today. Thanks, Sean. You have literally been on the front lines of this pandemic since the beginning. In January of 2020, the first COVID-positive patient in the U.S. was admitted to an airborne isolation unit at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Washington, where you were part of the team that cared for him. Two years on, what's your snapshot of where we are in the pandemic? You know, the pandemic was, and and I think probably everybody recognizes at this point, a threshold event for healthcare in America, that we will all look back on the past couple of years as before COVID, and then there's this event, and then there'll be after COVID. And so we knew the healthcare system was imperfect and could use improving in the before COVID era, that it was unevenly distributed, it was catering to the haves, not the have-nots, that there was unequal access, and that the cost was unaffordable for the people that we serve, right? And then COVID hits. And COVID hits in a way that um, initially it was in the communities that can afford air travel, right? So it so it was in urban centers where people went back and forth to where the germ originated in, in China, um, but then rapidly spread into communities where um, there was less access to care 
and less trust in the healthcare system. And so at the initial outset of the pandemic, we saw um, enormous inequities in health outcomes and in health risk for first responders in communities of deprivation. And so that highlighted what the problems were to begin with. The other thing is we had very little public health infrastructure to do things like give us early warning systems on, on tracking and where new outbreaks were. So we had to, had to, you know, it was a grad student that was building a tracker tool at Hopkins became the de facto tracking tool for one of the wealthiest nations on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out of some grad students lab in Hopkins, right? It revealed the the incredible dearth of infrastructure that we have in public health in the country. Um, so that's on the negative side with COVID. On the positive side, the entrepreneurial ecosystem we have here within healthcare allowed us to create the tools that solved the problem. That the fact that we could very rapidly stand up um, the scientific knowledge to figure out how to prevent infections, as well as to treat people who have the virus, um, and then how to create the vaccine to put an end to the global pandemic is absolutely remarkable. So so I think we highlighted the problems as well as revealed the, the upside. And now the question is in the post-COVID world, how do we leverage solving the problems and building on what works. Yeah, the speed with which the vaccines were developed was just astonishing. I'm curious about what's going on at the bedside. Are people getting sick in the same way that they were two years ago? Or has the presentation changed? It has absolutely changed, particularly, you know, I'm talking to you here on January 7th. And so everything with COVID is there's a point in time. So January 7th, 2022, we are at the end stages of this pandemic. Um, we are in the, the I, I think it really is the finale of this fireworks show that we've been in going from um, what started in January of 2020 as a life-threatening germ that nobody had immunity to because it was a novel germ, right? So nobody had any kind of innate protection to the vagaries of, of what the germ could cause. Today, the vast majority of people in the U.S., either through vaccination or through prior infection with COVID, have some degree of immunity to the germ. In addition, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has done what germs tend to do over time, evolutionarily, um, in order to ensure survival of the species of the virus itself. Um, Germs have a tendency to become more contagious and less lethal. And the Omicron variant that we see as the predominant variant in circulation right now is exactly that, more contagious and less lethal. And so we're seeing significantly less of the severe, particularly lung effects with Omicron than we have with other variants. So is it imagining too far in the future that COVID becomes another coronavirus that we live with like a cold? I think we're there. <laughs> we're there, honestly. Like like I was, I was thinking earlier today about how it's time to pen the op-ed about it's time to put a fork in this that at the moment for the vast majority, not everybody, but the vast majority of people who've been immunized and boosted, 
Um, so I've had three shots for the most part um, for against that, that getting the Omicron variant is getting a cold. That if you have some degree of immunity in your system and you get this germ, it's like getting the cold or a flu. And um, we don't shut down society. We don't shut down schools. We don't cancel flights because it's a bad cold and flu season. Mm -hmm. We go about our lives. And that's about where we are at the moment. Did the reluctance in some circles to accept public health warnings early on and continuing recommendations for masking or distancing or vaccination, did the reluctance to accept that universally surprise you in any way? The fact that people pushed back on it? I don't think it surprised me that people pushed back. What surprised me is that we didn't have more organized, coherent messaging at all levels through the government that were steeped in science and steeped in, in understanding that, um, one, we needed to be transparent and truthful about where we were, but two, we needed to actually use professional communication techniques to make sure that that message was coherent and broadly understood. Yeah. You know, our other guest um, on this podcast is Julie Robner, and she told us a year ago when we spoke to her just how desperately gutted the public health system was. Cutback after cutback after cutback, and people had left their jobs, and people didn't see a future working in public health, and it really came to sort of bite us in the butt. When we needed a strong public health voice, it wasn't there, and Nature abhors a vacuum, so lots of bad information filled the vacuum. And if you think about the way our health system is constructed in the U.S., it's it's not surprising. Look at other countries that have the philosophy that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And in those countries, so most of the EU countries, Canada, Australia, um, South Africa, um, Costa Rica. I mean, I'm not just talking about wealthy Western industrialized nations. Um, that that they invest upstream, that they ensure that prevention and um, wellness and public health is part of what they fund. Now, that's at the expense of making sure that they have the latest breakthroughs in cutting-edge curative care if you get cancer, right? And so we tend to invest as a nation in that fabulous curative care if you get cancer, which is part of the reason why we were the major contributor to developing those mRNA vaccines, right? Because we focus on that cutting-edge curative care side and, and put dramatically less percentage of our resources in that upstream preventive side, including public health assets. What's the toll been on caregivers? Absolutely horrible. The fact that, you know, initially it was incredibly helpful when caregivers thought that they were putting their own families at risk, working with this unknown germ in hospitals, taking care of patients that they didn't really understand the risk to themselves, um, not having adequate PPE, then, and we were all scrambling and desperate. Um, they'd come home and have to shed their clothes they used at work in the garage and shower before they went in and hugged their kids because they just didn't know if they were going to infect their 
kids with some lethal germ, right? So there was that unknown trauma initially and feeling like the system failed them because we couldn't get the PPE we needed. It was horrific, right? But at least at that point, the public was clapping for them at seven o'clock every night from their balconies at change of shift. And then came in the, the whole dissension around not believing science and then the protesters. And, and at the same time that protesters and that dissension that came from often dark corners of social media were stoking anger against things like wearing a mask, um, that, that at that same time, our people were getting tired of zipping up body bags in the ICUs. Probably the worst phone call I've had as a physician was last year around the holidays during the worst of the worst surge and had to sort through as a healthcare system how many refrigerated morgue trailers we needed to order and how deep the racks should be in those trailers, right? So we're surrounded by uncertainty by death, by divisions in society. And then people would leave their shift in the ED or in the ICU and go to their car and find a flyer on their car that um, that ignorance is no excuse, vaccines cause genocide and we will be held accountable. Is it any wonder that burnout is rampant Compassion fatigue is rampant in healthcare at the moment, and we're seeing a huge amount of flight from the industry. And so we have a huge amount of healing to do for the people who care for the patients who need us. How does a healthcare system the size of Providence address the burnout question with so many, so many caregivers? while you're still in the midst of taking care of people. How do we, how do we, how do we deal with the um, mental health and professional effects of a huge life state changing pandemic that's affected all walks of society? A couple things. One is we, we believe planning is the antidote to panic. And so we anticipated early on that this was just gonna be bad. Right. That that if you there's something called the Zunin Meyer curve that looks at um, that that looks at how people respond in a crisis. And that initially there's the, oh no, what is it? I know we've got to run in towards the flames and save people from the burning building, right? So there's that heroism phase. And then after the heroism phase comes the trough of despair. I can't believe I put everybody at risk and how did I do that? And then eventually you come up and, and find your new normal, right? And so as we were, and I remember very distinctly, it was last April, April of 2020, we said, oh, this is going to go on for a long time. We don't know when. Everybody right now is in the heroism phase. That trough of despair is coming, and it's going to last a long time. Let's get ready for that. And so early on, we started saying, how are we going to help support our people who are caring for these patients and caring for the families in the face of of everything from from uh, from, from the societal dissension to the the George Floyd racial reckoning, I, the, the financial challenges that we're having, the supply. Um, and so we we figured we couldn't solve all the problems. What we had to do was focus on resilience. 
and, and focus on how we can take what we have and keep going. Um, and kind of our model was, you know, how did Londoners get through the blitz? <laughs> that they couldn't stop the bombs from falling. Okay, so how do you get up out of bed every day and keep, keep going forward? Um, so we started developing tools and systems to help our people become resilient because it's what we could do. And, and we did things like Biltar, and, and it's got to have a better branded name, but, you know, I think of it as our stressometer. And we would have people go on in a reactive way and look at, okay, if they're mildly stressed out, here's some, here's apps to help with meditation and, and, um, uh, the, the kind of well-being assets that we know can actually make a difference in helping people build resilience. If you're more moderately stressed, um, we actually had telespiritual health. We built a telespiritual health infrastructure to allow people to speak with a chaplain, which was really helpful because they were really having a crisis of the spirit, as he said. Um, a little bit more stressed out and we connected them with telebehavioral health. So actually on demand got, got straight to cognitive behavioral therapy to help them build resilience. And even more stressed out, we connected them with our suicide hotlines so that we could could really help people um, that were in crisis. So that was an early on model to help build that resilience. And that was reactive. That was for people reaching out. And then we realized, well, we need to do even more. And particularly for supervisors that are trying to take care of their people. So we started, um, we built a No One Cares Alone program to help people to, to reach out and, and screen people for stress. And then how could we help connect them with resources to manage that stress. Because again, we can't stop the bombs from falling. So how do we how do we help you deal with the bombs that are falling? Um, and then we also did other things like make sure that that we could affect what we could, like, you know, many parents that were trying to homeschool children and take care of of their seniors that were in assisted living that nobody could go visit and oh by the way do their day job. Well, we made sure we have things like on-demand child care so that they could have help navigating that. Um, we did give people bonuses, retention bonuses and raises and adjustments and, and just trying to say, what what is it that's, that is that that is changeable yeah. about the environment today and how can we help make that change a good change? And what have people been saying? What, what are you hearing We've gotten really fantastic feedback. You know, we look at things like Net Promoter Score, which is um, whether or not somebody would recommend your service to other people. Um, and our Net Promoter Scores for most of the programs are in the high 80s to 90, which most of healthcare, by the way, gets a Net Promoter Score of like 20. <laughs> um, Nordstrom gets a Net Promoter Score, I think, around 60. Um, and so the fact that our programs, because I, I, I think people are just happy to have something to hold on to, even if it's, again, I would never claim that anything we're doing is perfect, but it's a whole lot better than doing nothing. And I think we're, we're trying to do what we can to help give people a lifeline in some really turbulent waters. I saw some graffiti this morning. It said, after the plague came the Renaissance. What, how is this going to change care? I absolutely think care will be fundamentally different in this, and and I would say post-COVID world, although I, it really is the with COVID world, it's like, right, right, COVID is another seasonal virus now um, compared to, to, so we've just added another coronavirus into our repertoire of the other four that, that circulate around. So in the 
hairy post-COVID world, um, I think care will be much more digital, much more um, on demand, much more available when and where, how people need it, much more affordable and much more personalized. And the reason I say that is things like telehealth, the genie's out of the bottle. There's no way we're going back to requiring people to schlep across town um, to come in for a 15 minute appointment, right? We've adopted the digital tools. We've embedded data, we've embedded AI into algorithms that now present information to clinicians, whether a person is there in person or not, um, to help us identify where people are at risk and then we can tailor services to where people are at risk. That's not going away. The genomics labs all dramatically ramped up their ability to test during COVID. Now we have all this genomics infrastructure and guess what? We can start doing genomics things like matching what drugs actually work for an individual and not giving people useless medications because that for their genome, it won't work. So this whole um, better tailored medication through better information, more distributed, more virtual, um, should actually make care more affordable and more equitable in the future. And I'm excited about that potential. You know, some of us hear those words and think, uh, but it sounds less personal. And I know that that's a value for Providence. So how do you ensure the personalism in the midst of the innovation? I, I became a doctor in 1990. Right? And in 1990, for me, what was all medicine was all about having a doctor and a patient in a room together, eye to eye, looking at each other and having a significant relationship and basing the care around what I knew about that individual and putting my medical expertise with their expertise about themselves and matching that up. What's happened since 1990 is we've gotten electronic medical records and then there was a computer between the doctor and the patient. And then we said, oh, you can't get paid unless you code properly and so we're going to put a coder in there to make sure that you're documenting everything so that you can get paid properly so we had a coder in between and then we added in insurance companies and pre-authorizations and 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 uh, oh you have to have a care team and you have to and what happened is that personal relationship started getting disrupted by all these other actors and all these processes and all these pieces and so before we went into covid we were in this position where doctors and patients felt much further apart, frustrating everybody in the system, but there was all this gamish of stuff in between them. And, and what we figured out is if we can use tools like data, information, automation, AI, so that the information that today we throw a whole bunch of people at that sit between the doctor and the patient, and we move that all into the background, and they become algorithms to say, hey, doctor, this person carries this particular gene variant that makes this particular medication. If you're going to, if you need to use an antidepressant or a cholesterol medicine, this would be the choice that is most likely to work for this patient. What you do is you, you have that conversation and you help decide along with the patient that, hey, you might need benefit from an antidepressant medication or a cholesterol medication. Um, and then the computer says, Bing, bing, if you're prescribing it, this particular one would match this person's information. Instead of putting 
things between the doctor and the patient, you enable and you simplify that relationship. You get rid of all that stuff that today has come between doctors and patients or care teams or nurses and patients, right? Um, and, and, and instead you simplify it and you allow that mountain of information that's just been continuously growing to, or the, I, let's use the haystack analogy, the haystack of data and knowledge has been continuously growing. And instead you present the needle at the time when that needle is needed, that's gonna help that individual patient at the time that it's relevant. And so that's what the hope is, that, that we use that not to disrupt the doctor-patient relationship, but you allow the personalized care that we know is the right care. Right. I've been thinking about individuals in the midst of this pandemic. Um, you know, the young person who just started as a nurse when this thing hit, or the first-year resident who you know, is now what, beginning their third year, and their whole experience of residency has been in the midst of this. And I'm curious about your role as a, as a leader. You could not have seen this coming, uh, and yet it literally landed on your doorstep before it landed on anyone else's. How has this been for you? I, as I mentioned, I graduated medical school in 1990. Um, and I was in Baltimore. And so the last pandemic was AIDS, HIV. And so I trained in an era where we went from discovering the germ to seeing it as a death sentence to figuring out that there were individual components you could treat to figuring out that there was a disease you could treat, right? And so knew that even though at the beginning of this, we wouldn't have answers, that, that science wins, that we have some really smart people there, out there doing great research. And if we allow the scientific method to progress, we will figure it out. And what we have to do is support patients, families, and caregivers while we work hard to figure it out. And so that was our theory all along is, okay, we've got we've to stop, focus on supporting our people, our patients, and our communities while we rapidly learn and keep people apprised, including the community, apprised of what we know, how we know, and, and what we do next. I think what's different today than was true back with the AIDS, HIV pandemic is social media and the fact that that rather than allowing that scientific progress to progress that we started producing clickbait and politicizing and causing throwing throwing bombs in between what should have been an ongoing learning process and it made it added complexity to what was otherwise difficult. So we tried very, very hard with our system to be open, transparent, honest, say what we knew, when we knew it, what we did not know, what we were still trying to learn, and made sure that we were using our data to rapidly learn within our system if we didn't have information from outside of our system because we knew that we needed to be part of the solution and not the problem. Um, and I think 
I think that was probably the biggest learning for me is that when the world is feeling somewhat chaotic, how do we help be that port in the storm that you can come to for trusted health information that we'd be willing to say, I don't know, we will figure it out. Let's see what information we have and make the best possible option today. And we'll commit to you that we'll let you know whether or not we need to change that option tomorrow because of more data that we get. And so I think that open, honest transparency, trying really hard to stay away from the drama and dissension and just focus on what's the next best choice that we can make was very helpful in building trust that, that we're that we're out for producing the most good for every patient. I was about 30 miles south of you during that time, um, living in D.C., working in D.C., and um, watching ACT UP come to town and demonstrate at the White House and at the FDA, um, really advocating for patient rights. And I think, I think that's one thing that's really different now than with HIV. Um, it, the idea that people would be involved in drug trials and could volunteer to be part of a drug trial uh, was unthought of in 1990. Um, and now it's sort of commonplace that people realize that in having a well-informed public means people get to participate in, in that care in all of its stages. And then, you know, amazingly, Anthony Fauci is present in both of those scenarios. It's like, how did he show up in both of them? Uh, and very much the, the model of what you're talking about, the sort of calm, unflappable guy who's going to rely on the science and not not lose his cool. I, I, I think just not even buying into the narrative, like this whole thing, well, um, you know, Dr. Fauci said masks aren't important. He was completely wrong. It's like, well, he said what he knew at the time. And of course, information is going to evolve. And not even buying into the the who was wrong when, because we're making educated guesses as we go along, right? And by the way, I think it's really important to say nobody's perfect. Like right now, something that that uh, on the on the other side of the aisle that sometimes it's hard to talk about is the fact that people who have had COVID have some degree of immunity to it. But if you bring up the words natural immunity, all of a sudden it makes it sound like you're an anti-vaxxer. And it's like, no, any, anytime people get an infection, they do have some residual immunity to it. Um, and so how do we make sure that we're allowing science to progress and not having the political agenda on one side or the other be the determinant of how we communicate and instead say, this is, this is what the science leads us to. Now, based on where the science is today, let's make the best possible policy decision that we can. Amy Compton Phillips, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips is president of Clinical Care for Providence. We reached her in Seattle. Nearly from day one, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic has been a clinical issue and a political one. And that remains so today as well. We want to take a few minutes to talk about the policy environment that we find ourselves in and what may be ahead for us all. Julie Robner is Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and she's on the line with me now from the nation's capital. Hi, Julie. Hi, Sean. 
Great to have you back on the podcast. You were on the program a year ago, and much of what you talked about then has come to pass. Alas. <laughs> Alas, right. Let's let's start with public health messaging. Dr. Compton Phillips brought it up earlier. Does the trouble that we've had finding a way to communicate a public health concern to the general public, does that surprise you at all? That we're doing not a great job with that? It surprises me that two years in, we're still doing not a great job. I mean, this has always been difficult. And, you know, part of the problem with people not understanding what current recommendations are is that the it's not just what we're learning about SARS-CoV-2 that keeps changing, it's that SARS-CoV-2 keeps changing. Um, that, you know, once we figured out how it was and wasn't contagious, then it mutated to become contagious in different ways. I mean, now we're at a point where what's going around is extraordinarily contagious. So all the rules that we've sort of internalized, you know, it's like masklets for 15 minutes indoors, don't really apply anymore. Um, So it's really hard to explain to people that it's not that science is an idiot. It's that what we know keeps changing. The virus itself keeps changing. Science changes, and you have to change along with it. And I think the public has a really hard time with that concept. So what do you think the solution to that would be? I mean, it would seem that some sort of trusted voice or voices would be able to step into the void and take a leadership role, but that doesn't really seem to be happening. It doesn't. And, you know, I think it's because science was already so politicized. Um, you know, we've seen that the anti-vax movement didn't start with uh, with COVID. It's been, you know, raging for 20 or 30 years now. Climate change has sort of gotten the country used to scientists disagreeing about what facts are. And we're seeing that sort of, you know, coming home to roost with this. The only thing that sort of, I don't know whether I should say it it makes me happy or less unhappy, is that we're seeing a lot of this in other countries, too, and not even just industrialized countries, just other countries Hmm. along the spectrum of people who, you know, just don't, who are, it's sort of, are you in it for yourself or are you in it for the community? And that's difficult, regardless of what your health system is like, regardless of what your government is like. It's just, I'm coming to believe it's just human nature. But certainly we can and should be doing a better job at trying to bring people along to help them understand what's actually happening. Right. You know, uh, Tip O'Neill, as you well know, used to say all politics is local. And I'm wondering whether this doesn't point to the need for... um, you know, primary care docs taking a leadership role in in espousing uh, public health issues to their patients. I mean, should the should the messaging be coming at a much more localized clinical level? Well, not everybody has a primary care doc. I think that's part of the problem. Hmm. Um, a lot of people, you know, it used to be sort of everybody had sort of the one doctor that you could go to when you got sick, and they would send you to a different doctor if they needed to, or there was you always had sort of a, what we call a medical home. But a lot of people don't have medical homes. Younger people want to just sort of do stuff on their phone. Um, there are a lot of places where there's a huge primary care shortage. So I really do think this is up to, to public health to to kind of communicate these messages. I mean, right now, just, you know, look at the testing problem. People can't figure out where to go to get tested, how to get tested, what kind of tests they need. I mean, I do this for a living and I get confused. 
those of us in the hinterland are hearing that the Biden administration is talking about revamping its messaging, sort of a, a overhaul from top to bottom. Do you have any insight into what that might be? We keep hearing that. Um, you know, every time they do messaging that, that doesn't work, they try it again. We certainly are starting starting to see uh, some more communications directly from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's been kind of a black box of late. We've seen its director, Rochelle Walensky, quite often, you know, and they've been doing uh, briefings for White House and, and health reporters, but it's been sort of high-level briefings, and we're getting talking points. So I think we're starting to be allowed to to talk to more people. But as you can see, I mean, anybody who's who's turned on the news in the, in the last six months knows that that scientists don't all agree on where we are right now or what should be done. So it's hard to get clear messaging when there's no clear message. Hmm. Um, on January 7th, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a number of challenges to the pandemic-related mandates. Um, you were listening into what was, what, three and a half, almost four hours of arguments. What, what did you take away from that? Um, that public health is hard, I mean, that's, you know, and the Supreme Court has as much trouble with it as anybody else. I did. I was sort of taken. I think it was Justice Gorsuch who said at one point, you know, we don't decide what public health should be, but we decide who gets to decide. And of course, in this case, they're deciding whether the federal government actually has the authority for some of these mandates. Of course, the employer mandate isn't really a mandate. It's a either uh, get vaccinated or wear a mask and get tested frequently. Of course, then there's the difficulty of can you even get tested right now? Um, for health workers, the mandate really is a mandate because they're dealing with people who are sick and vulnerable. Um, and the, the general sort of rule has been for years that health workers should be required to be vaccinated against things like flu. I mean, there are exceptions for people who, for health reasons uh, and sometimes for religious reasons, can't be vaccinated. But in general, health workers um, have had vaccine mandates for quite a long time. Uh, and, and that I think the Supreme Court seemed a lot more um, uh, accepting of the health worker mandate than of the employer mandate or test. Yeah. Um I've been talking to law professor friends of mine who, whose kind of rule of thumb was don't be surprised uh, at any time now that this court will lessen the power of agency um, oversight. Um, so that is probably a good thing to keep in mind when we, when we see more challenges appearing before the court. Um, I do want to point out, and um, you know, this the courtroom was nearly empty uh, on Friday the 7th. Um, one of the justices was hearing uh, the arguments from her chamber, um, and one of the justices appeared in the courtroom without a mask, um, which kind of just points to this communitarian notion of are you in it for yourself or are you in it for other people? Yeah, I mean, the Supreme, and many people have pointed out the irony that the Supreme Court is operating under much stricter COVID protections and protocols than they were uh, hearing about, um, that you must be, you must have a negative test to get into the courtroom. Most people are not allowed in the courtroom right now. I have, I am a reporter who has been in that courtroom many times, but I do not have a permanent pass to a permanent press pass for the Supreme Court. So I had to listen to the, uh, to the live feed 
uh, as did most of my reporter colleagues. Only a few are allowed in the room. And I think one of the biggest ironies is that in addition to uh, Justice Sotomayor deciding to uh, attend the arguments from her chamber, she has diabetes and is high risk and is is the only justice who's been continually wearing a mask in the courtroom. Um, Everybody who goes into that courtroom has to have a negative test on the day. And two of the lawyers, of the six lawyers who are arguing the case, actually failed, had positive tests and had to argue their cases by telephone. Yeah, it was like Mr. Toad's wild ride. Julie, it's it's always good to talk to you. Um, Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Julie Robner is Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. SARS-CoV-2. We can have educated guesses on what 2022 will bring. Certainly looking back over the past two years helps us remember just how far we've come and how dramatically the mRNA vaccines changed the landscape of this disease. But the virus will continue to change. It's what viruses do. And as Dr. Compton Phillips said, they tend to become more easily transmitted and less virulent. We may come to a point where vaccines based on spike proteins alone stop being as effective as they've been thus far. We may hear less about antibodies and more about T-cells. We may figure out a better way to communicate public health messages. We may be on the verge of the pandemic becoming endemic, we may learn to live with SARS-CoV-2 the same way we live with the coronavirus that causes the common cold or with the virus that causes flu. And that will be a win, a huge win. Even though people will still get sick, it will be a win. And our understanding will grow and we'll learn more because science. But in the meantime, we want to remember that today, hospitals are full, adults and children are still getting sick, nurses and respiratory therapists and doctors and chaplains and social workers and rehab specialists and housekeepers and administrators have been at this now for two years, shift after shift after shift. And they're tired. Once again, I find myself surrounded by sadness and illness and death. Zara Esmail is a palliative care physician in Torrance, California. So I think the re-traumatization of the experience of these surges that never seem to end is something I'm not able to process. Uh, When I come to work, I see a lot of our our caregivers, including physicians, nurses, the EVS staff, um, exhausted. You can see the fatigue in their eyes because they've been overworked, um, overstretched. And there is a lot of unspoken but very apparent uh, moral distress and depression and anxiety. Some days I have to 
really talk myself into getting up and going to work. Um, we do really hard work in the hospital because people are so sick and uh, we deal with a lot of uncertainty, um, people in a ton of distress where we are their grounding force. And so day after day now for almost two years seeing people who are sick and are so isolated in the hospital because they can't see their loved ones for days and weeks on end, I can't even imagine how scary that experience is for them. Uh, the visitation policy, again, is something that causes so much stress because these families are just not able to see their loved ones. Um, and the lack of families in the hospital has caused so much distress with our healthcare system um, that it's really hard to overcome that distrust no matter how clear we are in our explanations of what's happening uh, when patients are dying families are just not understanding that we're really doing everything possible and we're doing our best also i think um, losing a lot of our healthcare workers whether they have left medicine and nursing um, and seeing so many new faces and, and traveling caregivers is also a hard thing. It's very difficult to maintain um, that level of trust and communication and resilience when you're dealing with such a high turnover in your caregiver staff. Um, but again, it's understandable, um, especially for nurses who have been doing this day in and day out and so many shifts in a row. It's humanly impossible to care for sick people when you have no time to care for yourself that way. And then I was thinking about on my way over here um, that all the things we need as human beings for resilience and to have some joy in the meaning of the work that we do with this pandemic has been taken away. So during the day of hard work, and intensity um, and multitasking. You know, we as human beings look forward to socializing in the cafeteria and bonding and commiserating and all that has been taken away once again. So we find ourselves wearing the N95, the surgical masks, the face shields. Uh, all we can see are the whites of our eyes and that distance is so isolating. Um, it's hard to go through the day knowing that you can give um, a colleague a hug and be there for them. Dr. Zara Esmail cares for patients at the Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. Our thanks to Dr. Esmail, Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, and to correspondent Julie Robner for helping us look ahead to COVID 2022. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Amanda Schwartz, Catherine Gibbs, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin.
We couldn't do it without them. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation with nurse leaders from across the country and a discussion of retention and the future of nursing. I hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.